The cross of Jesus Christ is really at the center of world history. And the cross has two primary messages for us to understand. One, the cross is a demonstration of God's incredible love for us. But two, the cross tells us how serious sin is. Sin must be judged. And Jesus is on the cross being judged for our sins as though he committed all of our sins. It's an incredible understanding, an incredible dramatic moment in world history. And it's today, the crucifixion of Christ on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, we wanna let you know that this is a listener-supported ministry. Call with your gift at 844-48-TRUTH. Now, here's Pastor Michael. As a pastor, I've had a lot of experiences in hospitals. And I've seen two groups of people. I've seen a Christian. I'm not going to say that Christians are not afraid to die, but I've seen that certain peace with them, that certain uh, understanding that they knew where they were going. And then I've seen other people people who were not believers, and to their dying breath, reject the Lord. Push away this king who died for them. And Pilate, verse 19, wrote an inscription. Also, he, put it on the, he wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. As it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, the NIV says, Pilate had a notice prepared. He may not have wrote it himself. And he fastened it to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And notice it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, this particular understanding of the trilingual nature of the sign is important because this means that salvation, of course, is for everyone. Christ died for our sins, but he also died for the sins of the whole world. And anybody who was passing by that day who could read a sign, whether it was in Latin, Hebrew, or Greek, could read what it said. And Pilate really unknowingly wrote that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. And the Jews weren't too happy about this, 21. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate, I think, has had enough with these people. He says, what I have written, I have written. I've had enough, if I can read between the lines of you guys. Enough. I've, I've kowtowed to you. I've acquiesced to your demands. Enough is enough. And by the way, the tense of the language could read this way, literally what Pilate said, Greek perfect tense, what I have written, I have written, and it always will remain written. Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. And you could imagine the Jews were not pleased about this. To the very end, they wanted to make sure that he was not touted as the Messiah. Does it make you wonder what Pilate was thinking as this inscription was prepared? You think he was writing it a little bit because he wanted to get back at these guys? I don't know for sure. Verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts or four shares, a part to every soldier. 
And also the tunic or the undergarment. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. That would be close to the body. And they said, therefore, to one another, 24, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, speaking of the undergarment or the seamless part, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments, notice, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22 18, 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. David, the psalmist says, they cast lots. They divided my garments. Notice how uh, specific this is. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Incredible detail. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Probably four soldiers included in this uh, crucifixion squad. And it shows you the callousness of the world. That a man could be dying right above them or right in front of them. And what were they doing? They were gambling for his clothing while he was still alive. How many of you have seen the Ebenezer Scrooge movie? Oh, you all have seen that, huh? Do you remember when he uh, has the Grim Grim Reaper character come and show him things? I believe it's that character, or maybe it wasn't. But one of the the ghosts comes and uh, takes him to a place where they are bartering for his stuff. Do you remember that? And And the stuff begins to look familiar to him. And he's, hey, hey, that's mine, that's mine. Well, these guys didn't even wait till a crucifixion uh, victim was dead. They're already gambling for his clothing, incredibly. And there the soldiers did these things, calloused and cold. But there was another group of four standing at that cross. And it was his mother, Mary, 25. His mother's sister, you can write in your margin there, Salome. Mary, the wife of Clopas, by the way, the only mention of Clopas here in the New Testament. And then Mary Magdalene, four women standing at the cross, and scholars believe that John's standing there as well, probably the only one of the apostles, by the way, who was standing there watching Jesus be crucified. Four women and four guards, four believers and four unbelievers. The unbelievers are gambling for his clothing. The believers are standing there weeping for him, looking at the cross, Mary's soul, indeed, as Simeon had predicted, has been pierced through with a sword. Can you imagine what was going through Mary's heart and mind at this point? Seeing her son up there on the cross, all that she had seen in him, raising him from the time that he was a baby, and now to see him dying in this horrible way, disfigured and unrecognizable as a man. A scene of sorrow indeed, a scene of tears, and a scene of love. And there were standing by the cross these four women. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, most believe John here, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. By the way, Jesus was not saying that Mary had become officially John's mother or the mother of all the believing people, but he was saying, take care of her, John, for from that hour, 
27, or that time, the disciple took care of her or took her into his own household. What's amazing to me is that Jesus, even from the cross, is concerned about others. And while he is bearing his cross, he still says, John, in essence, take care of her. Take her in. By the way, this is more evidence that Joseph was not alive, his father, at least on the human side at this point. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21, where it says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And a jar full of sour wine or wine vinegar was standing there, and they put it on a sponge full of the sour wine, a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. By the way, it's interesting to think about this fact that hyssop is a little plant that was used in Exodus 12.22 for the application of the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost and the lentil back in the book of Exodus. Just interesting that hyssop was used. They took a sponge because there were not a whole lot of options for a crucifixion victim to drink and they dipped it in the sour wine and they would put it up to the victim's mouth. And Jesus is fulfilling Scripture and in control until the end. This, by the way, is to be uh, differentiated between what they offered him at first, which was a uh, drink to deaden the pain or a drug agent, and he refused to drink that. He would take the full brunt of the suffering. And when Jesus, therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up. His spirit. The tense is interesting here for you Bible students. It means it is finished and always will be finished. They found papyri from ancient times where bill of ladings or tax receipts would be stamped with the word tetelestai, paid in full, or it is finished. How many of you can say that as you grew up or as you tried to get your arms around the teaching of the cross, that sometimes you tried to bring your good works into your salvation. How many of you would say, honestly, that maybe even today you wrestle with that? That, that maybe you don't know if you're in good standing with God, or maybe you wonder, is it really paid in full? Do my good works work into this somehow? Well, from the cross, Jesus forever puts that to rest when he says, with a single Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished, and by the way, the other gospel writers say that he, with a loud voice, uh, said something, shouted out before he gave up his spirit. And what we believe happened here is that he said, it is finished with a loud voice. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was not the uh, uh, small, quiet cry of a defeated man. This was a shout of victory. It is finished. And then he bowed his head. And I think this reminds us of his obedience to the Father as he bows his head. John is the only one that tells us that. And then he gave up his spirit. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have what? The power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He did it for you and for me. Go to Matthew 27 if you would. <clears throat> Matthew 27, look at verse 45. Now a little bit more detail of what's happening on the cross because I want to tell you something that maybe oftentimes we don't think about. 
Matthew 27, 45. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Did you know God's name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over it? The famous verse, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, tells us that Mordecai sensed God moving in the darkest of times. This is a story about ordinary, everyday people taking a stand and becoming vessels through which God saved a nation. The story is filled with satire and seriousness, but it ends with celebration as God turns things around for good as only He can. Get your copy of Pastor Michael Lance's teaching of the entire book of Esther for such a time as this. Yours as a thank you for your financial gift of $30 or more to Walk in Truth. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. How many of you can say that as you grew up or as you tried to get your arms around the teaching of the cross, that sometimes you tried to bring your good works into your salvation? How many of you would say honestly that maybe even today you wrestle with that? That, that maybe you don't know if you're in good standing with God or maybe you wonder, is it really paid in full? Do my good works work into this somehow? Well, from the cross, Jesus forever puts that to rest when he says with a single Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished. And by the way, the other gospel writers t- say that he, with a loud voice, uh, said something, shouted out before he gave up his spirit. And what we believe happened here is that he said, it is finished with a loud voice. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was not the uh, uh, small, quiet cry of a defeated man. This was a shout of victory. It is finished. And then he bowed his head. And I think this reminds us of his obedience to the Father as he bows his head. John is the only one that tells us that. And then he gave up his spirit. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have what? The power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He did it for you and for me. Go to Matthew 27 if you would. Matthew 27, look at verse 45. Now a little bit more detail of what's happening on the cross because I want to tell you something that maybe oftentimes we don't think about. Matthew 27, 45. The physical suffering of the cross, the scourging and the crucifixion was not the worst part of it. One writer that I respect well said, you could have had a billion crucifixions And it would not meet the spiritual pain and the inner suffering that Jesus bore as he bore on himself the sins of the world. And this is what I want to highlight (coughs) in Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. By the way, this is recorded in secular history that a darkness happened over the land at this exact period of time, recorded by secular historians who attribute it to an eclipse of the sun. But we know that it was a divine (laughs) eclipse of the sun, no doubt. But the darkness is indicative of what was going on. And about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, 
You remember these words, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the physical suffering of the cross, as bad as it was, was not comparable to what Jesus went through in the inner man or in the world of the spirit. Because there he bore in himself the sin of the world and he minimally felt forsaken by the Father. Some believe that the Father turned away from him at that moment. And in some way his fellowship uh, was marred. I want to be careful to say that it wasn't broken because Jesus cannot cease to be God. But yet at the same time something happened so that Jesus who was always, John 1, 1, face to face with the Father, now had something between he and the Father. You know what it was? It was sin. It was you and it was me. And Ray Vanderlaan puts it well when he says, we could say it this way from the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? And darkness has covered the land. And Jesus feels forsaken. And he is forsaken so that you wouldn't be forsaken. He dies so that you don't have to perish. He pays the price that you cannot pay. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Remember Elijah, the forerunner. And immediately one of them ran And taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Here's where we believe. He said, it is finished and yielded up his spirit. By the way, what season are we dealing with when we go through this text? What time of the year is it for the Jews? Passover. By the way, at three in the afternoon, twilight. It is, uh, we are on solid ground to say that this is the time when all the Passover lambs had their uh, throats slit all over Israel at three in the afternoon on Friday of Passover week. By the way, it may well be that as Jesus is saying from the cross, it is finished. The shofar blows at the temple. And the high priest is sacrificing the sacrificial lamb and the blood spills and the lamb dies. This is the fulfillment to a T that Jesus fulfilled in being our Passover lamb. And amazingly, at that moment, when all the lambs all over Israel were dying, Jesus says, it is finished. Now the Jews, 31, therefore, because, go back to John, I'm sorry, John 19.31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, John 19.31, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Remember now, the Sabbath is fast approaching because it starts at sundown on Friday. So that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. This, of course, was the high day because it was the Sabbath of the Passover. Ask Pilate, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You've got to love the uh, sympathetic view of the high priests, the leaders. Go ahead and break their legs because we don't want to defile the land. Deuteronomy 21-23, Old Testament law says. You can't leave the uh, victim's body uh, into the evening or overnight. We don't want to break the Old Testament law. So go ahead and break uh, their legs so that they'll die. 
When a crucifixion victim was going through the agony and suffering of that kind of death, they would be spread out, of course, and they would have nails through their hands and through their feet. And the only way you could really get a breath is to push yourself up on a little piece of wood to kind of open up your lungs and allow some air to come in. And so in order to speed up the death of crucifixion, what they would do is take an iron mallet and they would come by the victims and they would break your legs so that you could no longer push yourself up on the cross and you would die faster. No way to open up your lungs and get the next breath. Can you imagine being one of those victims and seeing after everything that you've suffered now, the mallet man coming to break your legs? What a brutal, brutal thing. And what's incredible is Scripture is about to be fulfilled again to a T. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man, 32, and of the other man who was crucified with him. And coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, he had yielded up his spirit, you remember, they did not break his legs. In uh, two verses, you can write down Psalm 34.20 which talks about the fact that he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, this is a fulfillment. But yet it is a fulfillment of something else. The Passover lamb, Exodus twelve forty six, is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, and you are not to break any bone of it, Exodus twelve forty six. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, and not one of his bones would be broken. What's amazing is that there is probably very little um, way that this could have happened except that Jesus was in control. Because remember, the one on his left and his right have their legs broken. But Jesus suffers so much from the scourging, and of course he yields up his spirit before they come, that Scripture is fulfilled. Had they swung the mallet and broken his legs, then Scripture would not have been fulfilled. But Jesus was already dead, so there was no point in breaking his legs. And again, Scripture was fulfilled. And one of the soldiers, apparently not satisfied that Jesus was, dot, was dead or to make sport of him even further, pierced his side with a spear. And immediately there came out blood and water. Some believe that Jesus indeed died of a ruptured heart. That this indicates that his body was dead because only blood would have come out had he still been alive. But the mixture of blood and water... Uh, It either indicates serum around the heart or indicates that indeed he was dead. And he pierced him through. Some have liked to put it that Jesus ultimately died of a broken heart. A broken heart over the world's sin. And over the loss that we would suffer had he not done this. And he, verse 35, who has seen has borne witness. And his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. You see, John was there and he saw it. You can reference in your Bible 1 John 5, 6 through 8, where John repeats some of the same language. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. This is a fulfillment, if you want to write down, of Zechariah 12, 10. Sometimes we see this fulfillment in the end times where Revelation 1-7 says that they will look on him whom they pierce and back in Zechariah 12-10. 
But there's also a fulfillment in the crucifixion, that they'll look on Jesus whom they pierced. Many will marvel, and the scripture is fulfilled. Yes, it is amazing to think about how many scriptures, prophetic scriptures, are fulfilled just as Christ is being crucified, among so many others. I think of Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was born. And the scriptures point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the sacrificial lamb who gave his life for us. The Bible is amazing and incredible. Hey, I'm Pastor Michael Lance, and it is a joy for us to know, I and the team, that you're listening to these Good Friday messages. Today was part two, so remember you can listen to the entire teaching on this subject when you visit walkintruth.com. Now, I want to take a moment to encourage you to go to church on Resurrection Sunday, especially if you haven't been to church in some time. You know, we could use more partners because we want to reach as many people as possible. If that's something that you've been considering, please visit our website at walkintruth.com. You can click on the donate button and become a partner, a monthly partner, and you can be partnering with us in the greatest ministry of all, getting the gospel out. We'll send you my teaching on the book of Esther as a thank you this month when you visit walkintruth.com to donate. Now be sure to tune in again on Monday as we'll return to our series in the majestic book of Esther called For Such a Time as This. We'll be diving into chapter 7 where we'll see the downfall of horrible Haman. We'll talk to you next week. Happy Resurrection Day, and may God richly bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.